Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today we return to Australia and the Boyer Lectures, given by Noel Pearson, a community leader, writer, and scholar from the Gugu Yumuthir people in northern Queensland. In this lecture, I will put the case that the recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution is critical to closing the gap on social and economic disparity. The Boyer Lectures are Australia's equivalent of Canada's Masseys. They're delivered each year on ABC Radio National, and they're a chance for one of the country's leading thinkers to address the nation in a series of five talks. Noel Pearson was a leading campaigner for a yes vote in last weekend's referendum in Australia. The campaign ultimately failed, but it was the closest Australia has come to giving constitutional recognition to its Indigenous people, stating that they are the first peoples of the land. Noel Pearson gave his lectures in November 2022 at the outset of that referendum campaign. In the talks we'll hear today, he draws connections between the story of Indigenous Australians and the major fault lines existing today in Australia's society and economy. Our Cape York agenda is based on the metaphor of the staircase. The staircase to development and freedom. It has three parts. Its foundations, its underpinning support structure, and the stairs themselves. The foundations of any healthy community are social and cultural norms. The underpinning support structures for the staircase are the opportunities, education, health, infrastructure, property, that support individuals and families to build their capabilities. Finally, Individuals and families choose to vote with their feet to ascend the stairs of opportunity. It is families who climb stairs. No one has come up with a mechanism for social uplift that involves a mass elevator for a community to ascend all at once. Stairs are climbed by families urging their individual members to climb with them and investing in them to be climbers. That's our three-part formula for community empowerment. A strong foundation of social norms, investment in opportunity so that individuals and families can build capabilities to make good choices to improve their lives in pursuit of their own interests. Properly understood, self-interest is the engine of development. 
for families and for societies. No development is possible without it. This is how development occurs. The idea of social and cultural norms is conservative. It is about personal and family responsibility. That is why we start with a budget at the level of personal responsibility. We say to our mob, a better life begins with a budget. That's how we start the journey of family empowerment and social change. There is no getting around the need for personal responsibility. But our people also need opportunities to make a better life. This is the next step. Supporting families to get their domestic lives sorted out. Income for basic needs, education for the children, health services for each individual, and a prideful home for the family. By providing opportunities in return for exercising personal responsibility. We always want this to be based on reciprocity. A hand up, not a hand out. But responsibility and opportunity must be supported and enabled by structural change that allows Indigenous communities to take responsibility for our own empowerment. That is the top level, the structural reforms so that government support enables us to develop rather than weakening us with passive welfare. The ultimate structural reform is constitutional recognition, from which everything else cascades. This is the arc that connects the constitutional recognition of our people with the personal responsibilities and opportunities of every individual and family. This is why I support a constitutionally guaranteed voice in our affairs, because properly designed, it will enable Indigenous people to take responsibility for the problems we face. Our communities live our problems. No one is better placed to solve them. This is the only path to closing the gap. One thing we are unable to get governments to understand is that reform requires us to transition from paradigm A to paradigm B. It is not a matter of fiddling around with A. A is the world of passive welfare and disempowerment. B is the new world of self-determination, true responsibility and empowerment. Our challenge is to leave A behind and do everything to create B. The problem is governments want to twiddle the social knobs to adjust A. They don't see that an entire paradigm shift is required. We have still not broken through with our reform argument. The ultimate structural reform, and most challenging, is constitutional recognition. In 1999, 
I launched my critique of passive welfare as foundational to understanding the deep social and cultural dysfunction and disadvantage of my own home community and other communities of Cape York Peninsula. Nothing over the course of the past two decades has caused me to resile from this analysis. Whilst conservatives instinctively supported our policy from the beginning, the left did not. And it is probably fair to say largely still do not today. Witness the rolling back of alcohol bans in the Northern Territory and Queensland, both instigated by the left on the basis of lofty principles with little regard to the practical realities in many communities. Is there a better example of why local communities need a constitutionally guaranteed say in decisions made about them? Those decisions should have been undertaken in true partnership with local communities. That is what a constitutionally guaranteed voice is intended to ensure. Let me turn to the entrenched problem of welfare dependency in Indigenous communities, a problem that also besets many non-Indigenous families and requires innovative solutions. My account of my community's descent into passive welfare and that of other Cape York communities was not different from W.E.H. Stanner's description in his 1968 Boyer Lectures. Homelessness, powerlessness. There is a third and fatal element. In a hundred local patterns, they drifted into a vicious circle of poverty, dependence and acceptance of paternalism. Every act of paternalism deepened the poverty into pauperism and deepened the dependence into inertia. The situation was self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing. There it is, dependence and the acceptance of paternalism. Every act of paternalism deepening the poverty into pauperism and the dependence into inertia. I would speak about this 30 years after Stanner, with paternalistic dependency now well entrenched and its effects on social and cultural functioning impossible to deny. Paul Collier, the development economist's 2007 book, The Bottom Billion, argued that a billion of the world's population living predominantly in Africa and Central Asia were not beneficiaries of development, stagnating at best and more often declining. They constitute peoples and nations caught in one or more of four traps. A conflict trap, a natural resource trap, the geographic trap of being landlocked by bad neighbours and bad governance in a small country. 
Collier's framework was useful to me thinking about the situation of Australia's Indigenous peoples, for whom development indicators are as parlous as the bottom billion, but whose context, a fourth world population within a wealthy first world country, is distinct. Indigenous communities constitute stranded pockets of undevelopment. Using Collier's development frame, I zeroed in on the particular development traps Indigenous communities are caught in. Our communities are part of the bottom million in Australia, which, like Collier's bottom billion, is not advancing and who suffer from intergenerational disadvantage and dysfunction, and nothing is working to change their prospects. Underclass whites and migrants are also caught in the same traps as the Indigenous underclass. In a 2017 report, the Productivity Commission quantified 3% of Australians roughly 700,000 people who were in income poverty continuously for at least the previous four years. They come from single-parent families, the unemployed, people with disabilities, and Indigenous Australians who were particularly likely to experience income poverty, deprivation and social exclusion. The Commission's numbers are open to debate. They're likely an underestimate. I propose this bottom million is caught in four traps. One, the trap of the natural rate of unemployment. Two, the trap of the middle-class welfare service industries. Three, the trap of the vice industries. And four, the trap of voicelessness. The trap of the natural rate of unemployment is ultimately the trap of passive welfare. It is the product of the macroeconomic policy management of the Australian economy, founded on the idea that there is a natural rate of unemployment, historically around 5%. Orthodox economists hold that this natural rate of unemployment is needed to control inflation. It is this conventional approach that keeps a cohort of Australians permanently unemployed. This is Australia's bottom million. They are intergenerationally disengaged from the economy with deeply embedded cycles of disadvantage and dysfunction. They do not just include people with disabilities, but people debilitated by their situation in the underclass. This group includes many Indigenous Australians. Across the Anglosphere, governments have developed welfare-to-work policies that have been a charade a cruel con against the poorest and least powerful. 
the bottom million have been exhorted and told to get off welfare, while macroeconomic policy has been deliberately aimed at keeping them unemployed. By using unemployment to control inflation, the so-called natural rate of unemployment anchors the lowest price of available labour, not at the minimum wage, but at the rate of welfare payments, which is below the poverty line. A group of Australians are kept in poverty to discipline wages. Let me now turn to the trap of the middle-class welfare service industries. The welfare state has created a vast middle class of bureaucrats, academics, non-government and now for-profit organisations whose raison d'etre is to fund, organise and deliver services and programs to the underclass all pursuant to a social policy of the state. The underclass are diagnosed as having needs. Those needs are deemed to require a service or program, which is then delivered to a passive clientele. The assumption is that services are solutions and people with needs can never have enough of them. This is a parasitic industry, a vast and invested industry. This is the middle class harnessing the underclass as clients and as subjects of their social policies and services. It has delivered no social change in the circumstances of the underclass and is yet the primary expression of governmental compassion for the downtrodden. But this industry is really a callous and relentless boot on the throats of the poor. It accepts that poverty is permanent. But if we accept that the poor will always be with us, and that's that, then there is no solution to closing the gap. Given remote Indigenous communities form this welfare-dependent population, then no gap will close if we accept that class advancement for the underclass in Australia is impossible. The problem is that essential and beneficial government service delivery is mixed up with a vast panoply of services that have displaced Aboriginal individuals, families and communities from taking up their own responsibilities. Instead of investing directly into families in order to build their capabilities, we have a self-serving industry of service delivery. The third trap is that of the vice industries. The African-American economist Thomas Sowell said, the poor are a gold mine. The powerful and predatory gambling, grog and illegal drug industries are ruthless when it comes to the poor. And the underclass is riddled with addiction epidemics 
which are now well entrenched. No great policy energy is displayed by governments to tackle these industries and the disproportionate misery they cause to poor families. In respect of gambling, the state itself is a co-profiteer from this misery. They let these parasites literally take food off the table of the children of the poor. This will happen again in Australian homes this very night. A voice should partner with governments to address grog, violence and suicide in Indigenous communities. It should also urge policy change in relation to gambling, which is destroying so many families. Which brings me to the trap of voicelessness. The Indigenous underclass have no voice. They have no power to change the policies that are supposedly made to address their problems. If a voice is to be effective and meaningful, it must be about giving the Yolngu a voice so that they can be empowered to solve their own problems. It must be about giving the Yorta Yorta a voice. This must not be a top-down socialist structure. This must be about empowering the small platoons to take responsibility in their own affairs. My life's work in Cape York has been dedicated to finding the methods and mechanisms for individuals and families to move from passive welfare dependency and disempowerment to agency, responsibility and empowerment. That is why I advocate for a federal job guarantee. The Australian structure of economic prosperity and well-being sits on top of a buffer of permanent unemployment, representing the bodies of the underclass and their children. This is ground zero of the depths of despair, suicide, addiction, violence and chronic disease. If we truly fix unemployment, we will be well on the way to closing the gap. But this requires confronting the reality of the public policy choices that are made by the Treasury and the Reserve Bank for the underclass. These decisions could not be more careless of the impact on Australia's poorest citizens, of whom Indigenous Australians remain the most downtrodden. Economist William Mitchell's proposal for a federal job guarantee would provide minimum wage jobs to everyone who needs a job, with government acting as employer of last resort. Through the minimum wage, inflation would be managed by an employment buffer rather than an unemployment buffer. If we are going to close the gap, not only between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but between the unemployed and the rest of Australia, we must ensure there are enough jobs 
for all those able to work and who want work. Only those who have never lived on the dole can say that people can live on the dole. Only those accustomed to the opportunity of work can afford the luxury of the idea that work is not foundational to the well-being of all humans. The best answer to welfare dependency is a guaranteed job. A job guarantee will heal these individuals and families and their communities. It is the best solution to the despair and mental unwell-being that engulfs our saddest fellow Australians. It will provide a new logic and trajectory for children to have better chances. This is what we must do to change the game for the bottom million and to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Let us create a voice that will enable Indigenous people to take back responsibility for our future, supported by the wider Australian society, but always us making the changes we want to see for our own people. And let's work to replace guaranteed welfare with guaranteed work and to end the scourge of welfare dependency and its twin, poverty, once and for all. Thank you. On Ideas, you're listening to Noel Pearson's Boyer Lectures from ABC Radio National in Australia. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name's Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Noel Pearson is a scholar and activist in Australia. He founded an Indigenous think tank, the Cape York Institute. He's had the ear of Australian Prime Ministers. In 2017, he helped write the Statement from the Heart, a petition asking Australia for constitutional recognition of Indigenous people. That statement led to the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. When Noel Pearson gave his series of Boyer lectures, there was still a year to go until the vote. He used the opportunity to tell Australians a wide-ranging story tied to the referendum, linking up with the country's history and what he sees as its major flaws and challenges. The overall title for the lecture series is Who We Were, Who We Are, and Who We Can Be the resonances with Canada's own path towards truth and reconciliation are many. Here's Noel Pearson giving his penultimate Boyer lecture. 
Something changed forever in Chris Drage around the time he turned 13. In 2018, I read a story in The Australian about the 16-year-old Aboriginal boy who tragically drowned in the Swan River with his best friend following a police chase. It was like so many stories of young black lives cut short that you read in the news regularly. The story affected me, and I followed the subsequent coronial inquiry. The journalist Paige Taylor wrote, As a kid, he was cheery and cheeky, growing into a champion athlete and a skillful junior footballer who could hold his own against much older boys and dreamt of following his Indigenous heroes into the AFL. Yet by the time he was a teenager, Chris had dropped out of high school, never to return, and stopped playing sport, becoming distant from his mother, who worried incessantly about her beloved boy. His pastimes instead involved smoking weed as he began to hang out with a back of wayward Aboriginal boys who, like him, never had a father figure in their lives and seemed to lack direction. Chris's mother, Winnie Haywood, believed the biggest influence on her son's errant behaviour was the absence of a father figure or a male mentor. His mother noticed her son had learning difficulties and had been diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. The school provided special tuition, but classes continued to confound him, and reading was almost impossible. His mother told Taylor that he taught himself to read from Facebook. Chris was enrolled in a highly regarded football program, but his attendance rates dropped below 50%. Everything fell apart for Chris in high school, his mother said. That was the start of all the trouble. It was like he was trying to find himself, but he was lost. I feel like I tried to teach him the right ways, but it just blew up in my face. This loving and dedicated mother did everything to give her children a better life. Now her son was lost to a tragic drowning. I believe Chris would have survived his absent father. I am convinced he would have prevailed over his ADHD and dyslexia. He had the unstinting love of his single mother, and that could have been enough. My belief is Chris's school education failed him. His primary education failed to teach him to read. The inability to read is, in my view, the universal explanation of why bright, irrepressible primary schoolers turn into sullen, disengaged high schoolers who drop out. I see this play out in depressing succession, involving hundreds and thousands of lives. 
For some years now, I have played with the metaphor of swimming. We know the technology and methods of swimming. We know how to teach children the mechanics of swimming so that they do not drown at our beaches, rivers, lakes, and swimming pools. If we decided to make the teaching of swimming compulsory, we would be able to ensure that every Australian child learned to swim. The same goes for reading. We know the technology and methods of reading. There is now a vast science of reading. We know how to teach children the mechanics of reading so that they do not drown in their school education and their future lives. And yet, we allow thousands of young Australians to drown in illiteracy every year. The science of reading tells us that reading and writing are new technologies invented by humans. They are only a few thousand years old. Many societies, like Aboriginal Australia, only encountered these technologies in the past 200 years. They are not part of human evolution. The ability to read and write is not something biologically natural in the way speaking is. The acquisition of language is part of our biological evolution. This is what the evolutionary psychologist David Geary calls biologically primary knowledge, like the ability to recognize faces and other crucial learning. The ability to acquire language is innate and natural. This is the first mistake the assumption that reading and writing is the same as language, and the task of school education is to somehow draw that out of the students rather than teaching them the skills and methods of what is a new technology. Based on more than 40 years of rigorous research, the science of reading tells us that children need explicit instruction in five essential components of reading. Phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. In the first year of school, when they are five years old, Phonemic awareness is the ability to make all of the sounds of the language we are learning. For students who have English as their mother tongue, this phonemic awareness is natural because such native learners have acquired it as part of their acquisition of English. Young Mandarin speakers are similarly aware of the phonemes of their mother tongue simply because it is part of their native language, which they learned to speak from their earliest childhood. Young Guguyimidrit speakers from my home are also phonemically aware in their native tongue. The problem is schools routinely overlook 
the fact that Mandarin and Gugu Yimidr students who are learning English are not phonemically aware of the English language. There are phonemes in their languages that are not present in English, and there are phonemes in English that are unknown in their languages. Schools need to explicitly teach students from non-English speaking backgrounds to be phonemically aware of English. Otherwise, they will be at a starting disadvantage compared to native English speakers. One of my ancestral languages is Gugu Yimidr. If you were to learn my language, I would need to explicitly teach you a number of phonemes that are sounds of the Guguyimidr alphabet unfamiliar to English speakers. One of them is the phoneme N, written NH. It is formed by putting your tongue at the back of your top teeth. The groper fish is called Ninini. Another phoneme common to Australian Aboriginal languages is ng, spelt ng. English speakers know this phoneme at the end of words like bring and sing, but would have to explicitly learn it because numerous Guguyimidr words start with ng, such as ngali, you and I, and ngandan, us. They would also need to learn the trilled R, such as in wara, bad, and kangaroo, kangaroo. Rrr is common to Australian languages, but unknown to English. So I would need to explicitly teach you these phonemes. Only if you grew up with Kukuyimithir as your mother tongue would these phonemes be known and pronounceable by you without explicit instruction. A knowledgeable Guguyimidr teacher would need to explicitly teach you. That's an excerpt from Noel Pearson's fourth Boyer Lecture, originally broadcast on Australia's ABC Radio National. We'll now hear part of his fifth lecture, the finale of his Boyer series. He concludes with a reflection on Australian identity and what he believes should bind Aboriginal Australians together with Torres Strait Islanders, colonial settlers and their descendants, and more recent arrivals from around the world. I am human and proud to be so. I'm so astounded to be part of this race, the race of the humans. We are a staggeringly amazing species. Our genius is the source of my most profound wonder. Our home is this planet in which we have evolved. This planet is also the most amazing thing in the known universe, growing smaller and more precarious each passing year. My fear for our foolishness is equal to my amazement at our genius. How could we have such a clear sense of how we are jeopardizing our ecological future and not muster 
the resolve to change our course. That we are first of all humans may sound like a trite way to begin a discussion about Australian identity, but it is the right one. The correct starting place for all discussions of human identity is our common humanity, for we cannot take for granted that we have put racial distinctions behind us. Even as we emerged out of the pseudo-scientific racialism that so tragically informed the cultural and social distinctions of the 19th and early 20th centuries, these distinctions still inform human prejudice and conflict around the world. My purpose here is not to explicate why humans form identities and attach so much significance to distinctions. I accept that identity is important to all of us and distinction is part of that importance. My point is the extraordinary diversity we have developed as a matter of social and cultural fact is undermined when we forget the great similarities and commonalities of our humanity. The concomitant of difference is commonality. All of this prologue is to explain why it is that I share with that dead white male literary critic of the 18th century, Dr. Samuel Johnson, that the greatest production of our human genius is John Milton's great epic of the preceding century, Paradise Lost. I could devote the rest of this boyer justifying this case, but I will spare you my zealous idiosyncrasy. The point is my greatest artistic enthusiasm comes from the literary culture of English poetry, from a blind revolutionary republican who was the chief propagandist in favour of the beheading of our new king's first predecessor, Charles I, who in turn was near put to death by his son, Charles II, when the reign of the Cromwells ended. The world is my culture. I am so enthused, interested and astounded by the extraordinary diversity of human societies and cultures. I'm so impressed by the cultures of tribes all over the world, the Jews, the Germans, the Sioux and Iroquois of North America, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, the Pintobi and Wick of Australia, the cultural and linguistic distinctions of these great tribes are a gift to more than their members, and their achievements and failures are a source of endless fascination. It is our respect for our common humanity that animates our respect for this great diversity. Of course, problems arise when the distinctions of culture are posited as distinctions of race. Valuations of innate qualities, capabilities and worth 
are assumed to be racial and hierarchies of superiority and inferiority. When fixed upon these distinctions, our common humanity is diminished and sometimes shattered in a process of racialist oppression. The economics of power is the great driver of racialist oppression between humans, and so it has been with the Aborigines of Australia, whose relegated place in the hierarchy of the globe was the lowest of the low. In the midst of the culture wars on the Western canon in the 1980s, the Jewish-American writer Saul Bellow asked, Who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, the Proust of the Papuans? I'd be glad to read him. The best repost came from the African-American journalist Ralph Wiley. Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus. Proust is the Proust of the Papuans. Einstein is the Einstein of the humans. Milton is the Milton of the Guguimidhir. We all own Shakespeare and Dickens and Tolstoy and Ellison because we are human and this heritage is ours. When we secure the recognition of our identity as the first peoples of Australia through the constitutional enshrinement of a voice to the parliament and executive government, we must then make it our business to teach our young that their indigeneity is not all of their identity. We must teach our young people to also embrace the other ethnic identities from which they are descended and of which communities they are also members. To embrace one's own British or European, or Asian, or African ethnic identification does not diminish one's identification as indigenous. Contrary to the racialist formulas of the past, one does not become a quarter indigenous or half indigenous. One becomes indigenous and Chinese in terms of ethnic community membership, if one so chooses, and these communities recognise this. We must teach our young to embrace all communities of identification that mark our sense of who we are. There are myriad communities associated with ethnicity, religion, political association and polities recreational, philosophical and artistic identification, sexual orientation and lifestyles. We are not just indigenous. The reason I want us to teach our young the concept of the multiple layers of our communities of identification is I don't want us to make the mistake of identity fundamentalism. The idea that we have a singular identity based on politics, ethnicity, or religion. Rather, each of these communities of identification are only one of a plurality, 
when our concept of who we are becomes fundamental, we lose the other bridges of identification that connect us to everyone else in some way or another, and which is the wellspring of unity and fellow feeling. Our national identity as Australians is, of course, the most ubiquitous bridging identity. With the campaign for next year's referendum nigh, I am troubled with the idea that we will divide into camps of yes and no. It is a requirement of the machinery of constitutional amendment that voters are required to vote yes or no, but still, how I wish it were not so. I am pained by us versus them and them versus us. Too much of our contemporary politics is consumed by us and them. I most blame the advent of the permanent campaign, the abandonment of the convention that the contestation of ideas and policies should be vigorous leading up to the elections and then the results should be respected by the contenders for power and the campaigning should end and governing should begin. The permanent campaign leaves no respite after an election is finalised. Instead, the next campaign begins immediately the day after. The permanent campaign came to afflict politics with President Richard Nixon in the 1970s, advised by the wicked genius of the strategy's inventor, Roger Isles. The corrosion of the American social and political system is such that it may never again be possible for all Americans to employ those most important words, we, the American people. Americans have abandoned the highest plane of their civic mutuality, the first person plural, and have descended into the tribalism of us versus them, blue versus red, north versus south. I hope we aren't following the Americans down this road. As vigorous as our contest of philosophies should be, we should always preserve our commitment to the first person plural. Which is why I am convinced the referendum on Indigenous Australian recognition should not be understood as yes alliance versus no alliance, conservatives versus progressives, left versus right, us versus them. This is not the plane on which we should settle the matter of recognition. Recognition is about synthesis. It is about yes meeting no, city meeting the bush, remote meeting the metropolis, and conservatives meeting the progressives. It is one of those times when we plead with both camps to see the other as fellow countrymen, 
and to find the common and higher ground that we can unite around. Let me invoke one last thought experiment for these boyers, that we bring together all of the great Australians of our public life who have now passed, from James Cook to Ben Long, from Arthur Phillip to Junda Murra, from Daisy Bates to Margaret Tucker, from Jack Patton to Margaret Gilfoyle, from R.M. Williams to Eddie Marbo, from Essie Coffey to Bill Wentworth, from Jim Killen to Kim Beasley the Elder. I will stop here, but you get the idea. If we ask this conference of our ancestral dead to consider the prospect that lies before us now, that we secure recognition of Indigenous Australians through a constitutional provision that empowers legislation establishing a voice to the parliament and government of the day, what would our ancestral dead tell us? The present living we should do on behalf of our as-yet-unborn. Next year, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will take the recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution of Australia to a referendum of the Australian people. If we rise to the opportunity that now presents, our three Australian stories will become one. And even as we maintain our diverse individual and group identities, we will be able to speak in the first person plural. We, the Australian people. Thank you. You were listening to excerpts from Noel Pearson's Boyer Lectures. He was speaking in November 2022, a year ahead of Australia's referendum on the constitutional changes. The proposal was ultimately rejected on Saturday, October 14, 2023, with 60% of adult Australians voting no. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to find out more about the Boyer Lectures and read the full transcripts. You can also follow links to the original full broadcasts on ABC Radio National. Technical production, Gabby Hagorilis. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.